All right, uh, let's open our Bibles or navigate on our tablets and phones over to Jeremiah chapter 34. We're studying through the book of Jeremiah, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. We're in chapter 34 this morning. It's actually very timely, as you'll see. The topic, the Lord asks his besieged people to obey him in the midst of their crisis. And so the title of our message, let's put Christ back in crisis. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we are definitely here to see Jesus on the cross, risen from the dead, ascending into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, poised and ready to return. The Bible says we see through a glass dimly. We are going to one day see face to face. Today I pray that you would give us clarity about Jesus and his love for us, his grace, mercy, acceptance, the forgiveness that is ours as we encounter him in your word. May your spirit who is within us and in this place be our teacher, we pray. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. By some estimates, on the Sunday following the 9-11 terror attacks, roughly half of the adult population of the United States attended a church service. The attendance dropped off starting just two months later in November. According to Barna Research, one year later, religious activity was back to just about what it was before the attacks. A professor of theology explained it this way. He said, when things are going bad, we want to turn to God and we want to get right with him and we want to attend church. When things level out, we tend to forget the most important things and we drift away. The citizens who were huddled inside the walls of Jerusalem were in the midst of a severe crisis. The Babylonians were on the other side of those walls besieging them. The Jews had a rush of obedience towards God. It was, however, short-lived. When they thought the crisis had passed, they picked back up right where they had left off, disobeying God. A crisis is a terrible thing to waste. God uses it to draw you to or back to himself. He doesn't just want to get you through it. He wants you to walk with him long after it's over. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, there is delight in obeying God in your crisis. And number two, there is danger in disobeying God after your crisis. Let's take a look at the delight of obeying God in verses 1 through 10. Now, while they were under siege, the Jews were told by God through Jeremiah to release their slaves. We'll talk about Jewish slavery in just a moment. They obeyed, they released their slaves, but soon after something happened that made them change their minds. Hearing that the Egyptian army was on the march, the Babylonians withdrew from Jerusalem. Thinking the crisis was over, the Jews quickly reclaimed their freed slaves and they returned to a posture of disobeying God. And so that's the story we pick up in verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army, all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion, and all the people fought against Jerusalem and all its cities, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and tell him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. And you shall not escape from his hand, but shall surely be taken and delivered into his hand. Your eyes shall see the eyes of the king of Babylon. 
He shall speak with you face to face, and you shall go to Babylon. Now the fall of Jerusalem and the deportation and captivity of its citizens, it was certain. Nothing could change it at this point. When the Jews heard that Egypt was on the move and when they saw that the Babylonians withdrew, they ought not to have thought that the crisis was averted. It was merely postponed and prolonged. Verse 4, yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord concerning you, you shall not die by the sword. You shall die in peace as in the ceremonies of your fathers, the former kings who were before you. So they shall burn incense for you and lament for you saying, Alas, Lord, for I have pronounced the word, says the Lord. Zedekiah would have a rough go of it, but uncharacteristically, he would not be put to death by his conquerors. It was the norm in those days. It was almost a given that if you were the conquered monarch, you were killed by the conqueror. It was very symbolic and very necessary. The Lord is saying, now Zedekiah, you're headed for some rough times, but you're not going to be killed. You're going to die, live and die in relative peace and even have a memorial service rather than having your body desecrated by some enemy. It was a sign that despite their being conquered by Babylon, God was overseeing all these things for their good and for his glory. And, and you know, in a severe crisis like this, if you're a Jew and your, your city has been destroyed and your temple has been burned and you've been taken away captive, uh, you start to wonder if you've been abandoned by God. You might even wonder if there is a God. And so God, in several different ways, gave them moments of hope. He said, I haven't abandoned you. I haven't given up on you. You need to realize this is your fault. You're, you're in sin and you've refused for centuries to repent. You're a nation, so I have to use another nation to discipline you. But I want you to know that I'm still there. I am going to keep my promises to you as a nation. And one of the tokens that, that I'm still overseeing all of this and, and that I'm working out my plan is that Zedekiah will not be killed. He, he'll be allowed to live in relative peace and he'll be memorialized. And so it was hope to hang on to. There's always hope. God always gives sometimes huge tokens of hope to his struggling people. Verse six, then Jeremiah the prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah, king of Judah in Jerusalem. When the king of Babylon's army fought against Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah that were left against Lachish and Azekah, for only these fortified cities remained of the cities of Judah. All the other cities had fallen. Only these fortified cities, these three, remained. While the Jews may have held out hope they might outlast the Babylonians, Jeremiah was telling them otherwise. Their physical defenses were inadequate, and since they had refused to repent of their sins, their spiritual defender, who was God, had become their discipliner. There was no hope for them to, to mount a spiritual defense. We need to have a spiritual defense going on in our lives. I don't know how much you should prepare for the zombie apocalypse or any other uh, terrifying event. And I, I mean this sincerely. I don't look at people who have preparation as, as you know, being weird or people who don't prepare as being weird. That's between you and the Lord. Uh, you know, every, if you want to have batteries and flashlights and food and water and all, generators and bullets and all of those kinds of things, that's great. 
If you don't want to do anything like that, that's fine too. That's between you and the Lord. But over all of it, the overarching concern is, do you have a spiritual defense in your life? Is God on your side because you are walking with the Lord? Nothing would have helped. No, no thickness of the walls. Uh, and you see this throughout history, especially in biblical history with uh, the nations that had to do with Israel, whether it was uh, the Assyrians or whether it was the Babylonians or later the Medes and the Persians, they all had seemingly impregnable defenses that you thought, oh yeah, just go in under the wall. That's easy. Uh, or, you know, do this or do that and those cities fell because God had a plan that he was working out. And so your defenses are fine, but you need to be in tune with God. You need to have a spiritual defense. And so all of these people who, apart from the Lord, are making preparation for whatever apocalypse they think is coming, um, they can be the most fortified people in the universe. But it will avail them nothing if they're not walking with the Lord. They will be quickly defeated or uh, they will live and then die and face a Christless eternity. And so we want to make sure that our spiritual defenses are strong. And then after that, if you want to make some preparation because of the world we live in, that's fine. Uh, but don't neglect the spiritual. Verse 8, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people who were at Jerusalem to proclaim liberty to them, that every man should set free his male and female slave, a Hebrew man or woman, and that no one... Different categories of slavery regulated by Jewish law. For example, prisoners of war would become slaves of the government. They would be used in building projects and other more regular duties alongside Jewish laborers. If you were a Hebrew, slavery was something very different. You could sell yourself into slavery temporarily to pay off your debts. The servitude was initiated by the slave and he was the one who received the proceeds of the sale. He was also to be treated well and not like you would treat a slave, but treated as a hired worker or a temporary resident. Hebrew slaves were to be released after six years of service in the seventh year. The slave had the option of remaining in his master's house. However, this must be completely voluntary. To ensure that the slave was not being coerced, he and his master had to appear before a judge or the elders of the land uh, prior to becoming a lifetime servant or what was called a bond slave. If he was released, the slave was provided with goods so that he wouldn't be poor. And it should also be noted that forced slavery was punishable by death under Jewish law. I'm not saying slavery under Jewish law was a good thing, but it's a very different thing than we normally think when we think about slavery. It was more like indentured servitude and you had to be released after six years or volunteer to remain a slave for the rest of your life. Now, in light of the coming captivity in Babylon, God, through Jeremiah, ordered all Hebrew slaves to be immediately released. Verse 10, now when all the princes and all the people who had entered into the covenant heard that everyone should set free his male and female slaves, 
that no one should keep them in bondage anymore, they obeyed and let them go. So there it is. In their time of crisis, they heard the word of the Lord and they immediately, seemingly wholeheartedly obeyed the Lord. Now we have a tendency to think of crisis obedience as convenient. It's been said there are no atheists in foxholes. Men and women who are incarcerated often have jailhouse conversions that we are skeptical about. While it's sadly true that crisis obedience, or what we might call crisis conversion, can be short-lived and false, as we'll see with these Jews, that isn't always the case. I think we should encourage crisis obedience. For the most part, we do. We see every crisis as Christians as an opportunity for God to be revealed to individuals who previously had no thoughts about God. Whether it's 9-11, the terrorist attacks, or whether it's the recent tragedy in Connecticut, one of the things that we think as Christians is that we want God to come into the midst of that situation to reveal himself in his mercy and grace to people who might not have otherwise been thinking about eternal issues. If you're in a foxhole or incarcerated or in some other crisis, you need the Lord. Who am I to withhold the good news about Jesus just because your conversion might not be real? Let's say you're in a foxhole next to somebody in a battle. They say, man, how how do I know the Lord? Yeah, I'm not going to tell you that because you're only asking because there's bullets whizzing by your head. Yeah, uh, one of them's got my name on it. You know, I, I want to know how to know the Lord. Yeah, I, ask me in a week because uh, there's too many crisis conversions that don't stick. You know, it's, I was going to say funny, but it's, it's funny in a terrible way. I read a lot of stuff, uh, a lot of research this week as I was reading about this. A lot of criticism of crisis conversion. Uh, and they extend it even to evangelistic events and even church altar calls. You know, anything emotional or anything you know, that, that is like that, they say, isn't real. It isn't a real conversion. Well, most of the people who are making that criticism come from a tradition, a particular tradition, where in their church setting, their children are told from a young age that they're already saved. And then they go through catechism classes and then at some point they say, oh, hey, next Sunday, you know, if you're this old, you're going to make a profession of faith to God before the church. And they do it. And a lot of them are just not saved. And I know that because years later I talk to people and they say, yeah, I did all of that. And I thought I was saved. And then I got saved. Why? Because a crisis came into my life that I realized I couldn't handle. And I knew I didn't know God. Uh, and so... I don't want to criticize anybody. Why do we have to criticize everything? Let's just bring the gospel. You find somebody that's not in a crisis? Do they need Jesus? Yeah, absolutely, because the crisis is coming is death and hell. Somebody's in a crisis, do they need Jesus? Yes. Is it going to stick? That's none of my business. Amen. None of my business whether it's going to stick or not. Uh, what else do you say? So bring God into the crisis. Preach the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation at all times, and a crisis might be the very best time for it. Now listen carefully to this. I don't know, not because it's hard to understand, but it's hard for me to explain this, but I think you'll, you'll understand. Don't tell people 
God determined the crisis upon them so that he could save them. Don't say that. It portrays God as one of those crazy caregivers who brings a patient just to the point of death and then swoops in and saves their life so that they can have the accolades. And when we read about that, we think that person's nuts, that person's crazy, that person's dangerous, that person needs to be locked away. And then we flippantly turn around and say, oh, God allowed you uh, to be run over by a forklift so that you could hear the gospel. You know, we live in a sin-sick, ruined world where terrible things happen. And the Bible says that God is not the author of sin. Certainly, he oversees things. There's no doubt about that. He's not, you know, he hasn't lost control of everything. But that's different than saying God shot you so that you could get saved. How does that make God any different than some of these Munchausen by proxy people that do the same thing? It doesn't. We want to bring Jesus into the equation in a different way as the suffering Savior who understands pain. Jesus one time was asked about some disasters that happened. You know, who sinned? These people, you know, this tower fell in Siloam or these people were killed in this rebellion. And he, he didn't even bother answering the question, really. He just brought their attention back to the need to know God and to walk with God. And so, you know, I, I don't have, I have philosophical answers for, you know, why there is suffering. And we talked about that last week. But what we're talking about now is bringing God into a grief situation. People need God. And even when they're saying, where was God? I can't believe in God if he would allow this. They still need God more than ever in that situation. Because what good does it do to eliminate God in a time of crisis? So now a crisis has happened, you're involved in a tragedy, and now you also want to get rid of God? What's left? Our society's not doing a very good job with all of this. You know, there's a big... It's terrible right now when people should just be grieving and, and figuring out how to deal with grief. And there's this huge discussion now going on about guns and gun control and this control and that control and, and psychology and mental health and all these experts. I wish they would let us get into the public arena as Christians. Let us just compete with the other theories. So these guys, they come in and they have their mental health theories and they have their gun control theories and they have all this. Let us, let us just have equal footing. All we want to do is come in and share the gospel and then let people decide for themselves where, where the help really is. And, and what we have is like maybe one billion people who can give a testimony worldwide that uh, I was once blind but now I see. Now I have hope for eternity. There's nothing too hard for God. Those kinds of things. That's all we want to do. Because what we have is the truth. What we have is powerful. It's, it's the only thing that will change lives. Everybody else is trying to deal with something over here. Here's, here's a gun. What do we do about a gun? Should we have guns? Should we not have guns? Here's somebody that has a mental health problem. We're over here saying the root of the problem is sin. And the solution to that problem is Jesus Christ. So that's all we want to do is just tell people that. Not even belligerently. We're not even going to, you know, we're not going to force them to convert. We're just going to show them by our own lives, by the grace and mercy in our own lives, by the acceptance that God has of us as, you know, sinners. And, and, and you know what? 
That is what is going to affect the change in our society. A return, not, a, not just a return to religion, not a return to Christian values, but conversion to Jesus Christ. And so we're about the gospel and about bringing the gospel into these situations so that lives can be changed for eternity. So don't portray God as somehow being wicked so that he can be helpful. Uh, remember Jesus. He came into our reality. Uh, I mean, I don't even like to go to weird places at, late at night. Do you? I mean, are there places you say, hey, maybe we should go down and minister down there. Yeah, no, I don't think so. Maybe we should just rain leaflets over the top of that place and invite them to come to church, you know, or something like that. I mean, and then, but Jesus, he's in heaven with the Father and the Spirit, and he says, I'll go. I'll go. I'll become a man. How's this? I'll become a man. I'll be the God-man. I will, I'll be born in, in uh, the virgin's womb. I'll grow up in obscurity. I'll do all those things that we know that he did in order to show people the love of God Wow. Amen again? All right. God doesn't create crises to save people from. We live in a ruined, fallen world in which sin abounds and therefore crises abound. When the inevitable crisis comes, God can make his presence known to those who are suffering through it. He can save them from what mankind's sin has wrought and he can save them from the ultimate crisis, which is death and hell. Now, there's danger in disobeying God after your crisis, at some point after the Jews released their slaves, the Babylonian armies retreated. Do you think they might have thought it was on account of their obedience? That God was blessing their obedience? Hey, we, we finally obeyed God. We set our, our slaves free. And now the Babylonian army has retreated. Surprisingly, I think that is what they thought. Even though immediately they took their slaves back to themselves. Because this is what sin does to you. It makes you stupid. It makes you illogical. And so I can see this. I, after years of you know, having sin in my own life and dealing with it and watching people and counseling people, you think, okay, I, I obeyed God. The army withdrew. Great, everything's back to normal, so now I can go on disobeying God. And any of you who, uh, well, I think everybody understands that who's ever sinned or, you know, or got saved later in life, that that's exactly what you think of. I... I uh, sin makes you illogical. It makes you say and do stupid things that make no sense. Your life becomes full of contradictions. Some of you have been on both sides of this, but sometimes you, you encounter a person, you ask them questions, and, and it seems like they're evasive, or what they're saying doesn't make any sense, or it's illogical. Later on, you find out that they were in sin. Because I don't know how it happens, but when uh, sin just, you know, my dad used to say, college makes you stupid. I'd say something and he'd say, did you go to college to make you stupid or what? And I said, and uh, of course in my case, college did make me stupid. But anyway, um, you know, you, you, you ask somebody, uh, you're talking to somebody and they they're claim to be a Christian and, and I can't think of a, a, a good example, but so I'll just use a mathematical one. You say, hey, you know, here's, here's, here's math, two plus two equals four, right? And they go, no, actually no, two plus two equals five in my universe. Well, how's that possible? Well, it has to be possible because, uh, you know, I have this extra thing that I'm holding on to. And no matter how much you talk to a person that's in sin and show them God's word, you know, it says right here, thou shalt not, you know, fill in the blank. All right. 
you're in sin too. Nanny, nanny. We're all sinners. Yeah, but it says, I'm not doing that and you're doing that. So what, well, all right, well, maybe that's your interpretation. No, that's pretty clear. And the people are just, they're stupid. Sin makes you stupid. It really does. So if you want to be stupid, keep sinning. And if you encounter people that seem stupid, maybe they're sinning. <laughs> just, that's all I have to say. Verse 11, but afterward they changed their minds and made the male and female slaves return whom they had set free and brought them back into subjection as slaves. Before I was a Christian, I had a few negotiations like this with God. I was in a couple at least of real crises in which I promised to obey God if he would get me through them. I grew up Catholic background. I'm not sure if I believed in God or didn't believe in God. I know I wasn't saved, but you know there were a couple of times when I was in such a bad situation that I was hoping there was a God because he, I understood, would be the only one who could actually get me through this. And so you would negotiate with God. I'm not, I'm not saying that he, you know, that this is how it worked out, but in my mind, I negotiated a deal with God. So, you know, God, if you just get me through this, I will serve you. Well, then he, you know, in my mind he did, and I thought, man, what a sucker God is. Because then you just go right back to living the same kind of life that you lived before that got you into that crisis. And there are people who do that. The sad thing is, there are also crisis Christians. Months or years, even decades can go by. You don't see them anywhere near the church. Then they return and you find out they're in the midst of some crisis. They want to meet all the time. They want to call you all the time. They want to be prayed for all the time. They want you to visit them to get counsel. And we do all that gladly as unto the Lord because they're needy. But then the crisis passes and they're gone. Not necessarily into sin, but certainly they're no help to the body of Christ. You know, it's been said, people say, oh, I don't need Christianity, it's a crutch. And we say, oh, it's a hospital. It's a hospital for hurting people. But you know, it's an interesting hospital, it's a teaching hospital. It's a training hospital. Because you come into the hospital of the church and you get healed and you get taught, and then you become an intern, and you help and teach others that are being brought in on gurneys all the time. It's not a hospital where you come in and get helped, and then you take off again to get into another accident. And you say, hey, thanks for the help, but I don't want to help anybody. I'm glad you're there, and all these people are there when I need help, but don't expect me to get involved in that kind of a thing. Thanks, but no thanks. What kind of an attitude is that? It's a bad one. And the real tragedy, though, is on that kind of person because they're not growing in the Lord. They're not getting to know the Lord. They're not drawing close to the Lord. I wonder sometimes they're going to even recognize the Lord if they're genuinely saved and they make it to the judgment seat. Uh, you know, don't you want to know as much about Jesus as you possibly can before you meet him? And, and, you know, I mean, you're going to, you know, it, it's, it's going to be totally cool to be in front of the Lord and to look into his beautiful face. But I'd like to know, I don't know if there's going to be a pop quiz. <laughs> you know, Jesus, I mean, maybe Jesus says, hey, I've got a bunch of rewards for you and that's all set. But let me ask you this. In Luke 12, and you don't want to be able to say, you don't want to say, Luke, uh, what's that? I knew a guy named Luke. That kind of a thing. You know, I, I'm just being facetious, of course, but you, you understand. 
don't be a crisis Christian. They're like a relative who only comes around when they need something. I knew it would get a react. There's always one in every family. Hey, cousin, you know, cousin Gene is here. Yeah, what does he want? Hey, good to see you. By the way, I could use 500 bucks, you know. And you get tired of that kind of thing. It's, it's just, it's not healthy for anybody. Verse 12. Therefore the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I made a covenant with your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, saying, at the end of seven years, let every man set free his Hebrew brother who has been sold to him. And when he has served you six years, you shall let him go free from you. But your fathers did not obey me nor incline their ear. Then you recently turned and did what was right in my sight, every man proclaiming liberty to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name. Then you turned around and profaned my name, and every one of you brought back his male and female slaves, whom he had set at liberty, at their pleasure, and brought them back into subjection to be your male and female slaves. So we learn here that for decades, maybe even centuries, the Jews had failed to fully obey the Lord by freeing Hebrew slaves after their six years of service. God had been merciful, slow to anger, even though this was a particularly grievous way of breaking the law because you were putting a burden on your brothers and sisters. Verse 17, therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty, every one to his brother and every one to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty to you, says the Lord, to the sword and to pestilence and to famine, and I will deliver you to trouble among all the kingdoms of the earth. They would not let freed slaves have their liberty, so God was going to give them the liberty they chose. God said, you freely chose to disobey me, and so the liberty that comes into your life is famine and pestilence and destruction. It was your free choice to be destroyed. Anytime we sin, we are freely choosing slavery. That's a sobering thought. God is, Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead to make it possible for me to not sin. To give me the nature, the new nature and the power to say no to sin and yes to God. When I sin, I choose to sin. And when I do, I am volunteering myself for a slavery, for a bondage. Because sin always binds, it always brings me into slavery. I think once a month, everybody should watch the Pleasure Island sequence of Pinocchio. It's one of the greatest moments in film history. If, you're not, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to go watch Pinocchio. The boys get brought to Pleasure Island where they get to drink and smoke and fight and tear up houses and do rough house and do all of this stuff. And they have that moment of glory that sin brings, that total liberation to do all of those kinds of things. And it turns them into donkeys. And they're taken away to the salt mines. It is a beautiful representation of sin. Oh, yeah, I'm get, wow, this is so fun. Look at all the fun I'm having sinning. Yeah, for a short time. No, I don't care if it's for a long time. You're still going to be a donkey in the long run. You're still going to work in some salt mine in the long run. You're choosing the liberty of sin. 
Verse 18, and I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not performed the words of the covenant which they made before me, when they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts of it, the princes of Judah and the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, priests and the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf, I'll give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. Their dead bodies shall be meat for the birds of the heaven and beasts of the earth. If you've ever bought a house, you know there are tons of contracts to sign, lots of paperwork. It's super tedious. But it beats the way they ratified contracts in Old Testament times. The parties agreeing to the terms of the covenant, in this case the Jews, would pass between the parts of a slaughtered calf. And so they said, yeah, we agree, we promise, this is the covenant. They would slaughter this calf and then they would truck between the parts. And the symbolism was, if we renege, may we be like the slaughtered calves. Just go ahead and cut us to pieces. And so God says, all right, verse 21, I'll give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his princes into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of those who seek their life, into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which has gone back from you. Behold, I will command, says the Lord, and cause them to return to this city. They will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire. And I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. The Babylonians had gone back from the Jews, but they would return to complete God's judgment. Obedience would not stop the Jews from being conquered and deported and held captive for 70 years, and especially not some kind of phony crisis obedience. But it would have lessened the severity of their punishment. Disobedience brought upon them much more severe consequences, as it always must. Now, there's obviously danger in disobeying God after a crisis has ended. If you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, the crisis brought you face to face with your need for God. If you refuse to receive him and you return to your old ways without him, you might not be in that crisis anymore, but you don't know how much longer you actually have even to live and face the ultimate crisis by yourself death and hell you don't want to go through that by yourself Jesus says I am with you Emmanuel I'm God with you I'll be with you and take you to heaven or you can reject his free offer of grace die and one day stand all by yourself with no defense before the great white throne judgment of God all alone and, and it'll, it'll be the final crisis. And so, if you're not a believer, you know, you, you don't want to miss the opportunity in a crisis to know the Lord. If you're a Christian, you don't want to be a crisis Christian. We already talked about that. But even solid believers who give and serve can go through seasons where they draw back from the Lord and from his people. It's not healthy for you or for others in the body of Jesus Christ. We need each other and all the more as we see things deteriorating all around us. I don't want to step on anybody's toes. If you have personal plans, uh, just take this with a grain of salt. Be a good Berean and, you know, uh, think this through, but it seems like the natural reasoning that a lot of people have, even Christians, is the the world is going to hell in a handbasket. The you know next four years, the next eight years, whatever's going to happen, man, it's terrible. Um, everything's getting bad, so I need to find land somewhere in one of the states that's still fairly normal, meaning not California. <laughs> I need to get away from the city. I need to get away from all these crazy people and hunker down 
to whatever level, maybe in a bunker, maybe in a cabin, maybe with guns, maybe without guns, maybe with bazookas, I don't know. You know, I need to get away before the zombie apocalypse or whatever apocalypse is coming and, and, and stuff. Now, I want to just challenge you just for a moment. Is that what Jesus did when he saw the human race? Did he look down and say, man, I want to get as far away from these people as I can? How about life on Mars? What, what do you think about that? Can we start again? Because this is a mess. You want me to do what? Become one of them and live with them and die on the cross and rise from the dead and be in a physical human body for the rest of my eternity? I need to get as far away from this as possible. So I guess I'm suggesting that I kind of think that maybe if things are getting worse, people who are already living in the outskirts and in the hills and in the mountains, they ought to be moving to the city thinking there's a lot of people who need Christ. This is a tragedy. The world's going to hell in a handbasket and I have the good news. and, And you know what? Californians need it. Not just people in Montana. Just throwing that out there. Quality of life in California, going down the tubes. California may be bankrupt right now, probably is bankrupt right now. But we need to, we need to think spiritually, where does God want me? Not where do I want to be, what do I want to do? You understand your life doesn't belong to you? What you signed on, you might not have known that when you signed on as a Christian, but Jesus died in your place and he wants to take your life and do something with it. And it's always to be more like him. If you want to be like him, you're going to have to be among people who need him. Not all by yourself somewhere among people who don't need him. The world we live in is in a constant state of crisis. All creation is groaning as it awaits its final and complete redemption by Jesus Christ. People all around you, both believers and non-believers, are in specific crises. They need you to represent God's love to them. You and I don't have the luxury of disobedience if we want to be used by God. And you are either in or will be in a crisis, then another and another as you await the Lord. Disobedience will only make your crisis heavier, sadder, and more lasting. Obedience will delight your heart and mind with the knowledge that you're in a love relationship with the living God who is able to keep you and present you faultless before the throne of his Father in heaven. And so it's always crisis season. Let's put Christ back in the crises of life for our good and for his glory. Father, thank you for these things. I pray for uh, those who love you, Lord, that we would receive the parts of this message that are uh, anointed, that come from your spirit, that are speaking to our hearts, that are not just corrective, Lord, but that are comforting and compassionate. That we would realize, Lord, that you are our strength, that you are God with us all the time, God in us, God with us, that you want to be God through us as we touch the world around us. Lord, if we have to ignore some of the questions that people ask us to just show people your love, then let us be like Jesus and do that. If we have to say, I don't know the answer to that question, but I know this, I was once blind, but now I see, I was once lost, but now I'm found that there is a God and his name is Jesus Christ and that he loves you and that he died for you. He understands pain and suffering and sorrow and separation, death. 
but he also gives resurrection and power. Fill our hearts with the wonder of all of that, Lord, and more this crisis season. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together.